Amen. Good morning. Thank you for being here. <clears throat> this morning, we continue our sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit. And I want to invite you to follow along as I read two different passages for us this morning before Pastor Kevin comes up to preach. The first is Galatians chapter 5. We'll read verses 22 through 23. And then you can flip back just a little bit in your Bible and we'll read Mark chapter 10. These will be on the screen behind me as well. Galatians chapter 5, <clears throat> 22 through 23 says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And we'll turn to Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17, and we'll go through 22. It says this, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud, honor your mother and father. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word and that by it we can know you. We can know the way that you would have us to live. And Holy Spirit, I thank you for, for Pastor Kevin and his faithfulness as a communicator to be a, a messenger of your word. And I pray especially that you would be with him this morning. And Holy Spirit, I pray for us as well that we would have ears to hear, that you would use uh, your word this morning to correct us, to encourage us, but, but most importantly, that our eyes would be opened to the goodness of who you are, God. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. <clears throat> amen. Thank you so much, Stephen, and thank you uh, for being here this morning. And if you are in our overflow room or if you're watching by video uh, or listening on podcast, I'd like to say welcome to you as well. And for all of us, I would like to give you this disclaimer this morning. I got hit last week with either the flu or COVID or the black plague. I'm not sure what strain of virus it was, uh, but it just about did me in. I think I went through five bottles of NyQuil, uh, several bags of Halls. Um, however, I'm on the downside I think I'm going to make it today. Uh, just do not hold me accountable for anything that is said that is uh, complete heresy. Uh, and we will, we will edit uh, any of that from our video. So today we are on week six uh, of our study, our nine-week study of the fruit of the Spirit. I do want to say a special thank you to Will Washburn, who filled in for me last week and covered uh, the trait of patience. Uh, today, we are covering two traits, kindness and goodness. 
And if you read the chapter in the book for today, you know that these two traits are very much intertwined. In fact, I define kindness as the passive disposition and goodness is the outward display of that disposition. They are essentially two sides of the same coin. I I came across another definition uh, by an individual named Jerry Bridges that I really like. Jerry Bridges was a popular Christian author and speaker uh, before his death in 2016. And on the difference between these two traits, here's what he wrote, and I'll put this on the screen for you. Kindness is a sincere desire for the happiness of others. Goodness is the activity calculated to advance that happiness. In other words, kindness is the garment that we wear, that we put on, and then goodness is the way in which we live as a result of wearing that garment. And just to drill down a little bit further, these two traits are very much intertwined and inseparable. And here's what I mean by that. You cannot say, I have a sincere desire for the happiness of others. However, I am unwilling to do anything to advance that happiness. In fact, James tells us exactly that in James chapter 2. Here's what James wrote. Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? I love the way that James uses a rhetorical question here to make his point. James was the half-brother of Jesus. Jesus was the master of the rhetorical question. He could pierce your soul with a question. One day, Jesus asked this question, What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? What an incredible question. When I read through the New Testament, I am as convicted by the questions of Jesus as I am his statements. James, like Jesus, asked this powerful rhetorical question here. Suppose you see someone who is in great need. They are hungry. They need shelter. You see this person and you say, boy, I really hope life works out for you. I hope things get better. I hope you find some food. I hope you find some shelter. What good is it if you say that, if you feel that, but you do not lift a finger to actually help that person? The answer to this rhetorical question is obvious. It is no good at all. Kindness is inseparable from goodness. It is why Paul listed these two traits back to back in his fruit of the spirit list. Kindness is the garment that we wear and goodness is the display of that garment. Now, for the purpose of our study today, and just to keep it simple and to keep keep it from getting a little bit confusing, we are only going to talk about goodness. However, kindness is the passive disposition of the trait goodness that we are talking about. If you've got your message map with you, I'll list four key truths about goodness uh, on there. Here's the first one. You can write this in. Number one, only 
God is good. And we're going to spend the majority of our time talking about this particular point because I think even those of us who have been in church for a long time misunderstand this idea of good. When we talk about goodness, we have to begin with the question, how do we define what is good? How can anyone know really what is good or conversely what is bad? How can we know what is right and what is wrong? And how can we as a society determine what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad? How can we have a common understanding of good and bad for everyone? Now, if you do not have any kind of foundation, then you're left asking on a number of moral issues, is this right or is this wrong? And how do we know? So is murder wrong? As a culture, how do we determine is murder wrong? Is it wrong if it's, say, capital punishment? Is that wrong? What if it's abortion? Is that murder? Is that wrong? What if it's in the context of self-defense? Is that wrong? Or what if it's in the context of war? It's someone who is in the military. Is that murder? How do we know? What is our foundation for answering those questions? What about stealing? Is stealing wrong? Is it always wrong? What if you're stealing, say, from the IRS? Is that wrong? What, what if you just, you know, take a few office items from your company and take it home? Is that wrong? Or lying? Is lying wrong? Is it always wrong? What if it's a white lie? Well, what if you really don't want to say your true opinion? You don't want them to feel bad. Is that wrong? How do we determine? How do we know? Adultery. Is it wrong? Is it always wrong? What if you really love the other person? Is it still wrong then? What if your spouse is just really, really mean to you all the time? Then is adultery wrong? How as a culture can we answer any of these questions? What is our foundation for that? At the end of the day, the only way that we can know is if we have a common, absolute truth, a common foundation that we all agree with. If we do not have that foundation, then we're just left with opinions. There's my opinion versus your opinion. There's my truth versus your truth. There's what I say is right for me versus what you say is right for you. In fact, if you remove a foundation of goodness, a foundation of truth, then after this service, we could walk out into the foyer. I could come up to you and I could punch you right in the nose and you could say, ow, that hurt. I didn't like that. But you could not say absolutely that it was wrong for me to do it. In fact, you could say, I think that was wrong according to my truth. And I could say, well, according to my truth, I think it's okay for me to punch you in the nose. Now, understand, this is just hypothetical. If I see you in the foyer, I have no intentions at this point of punching anyone in the nose. But without that foundation, how can we really say what is right or what is wrong? And in fact, let me say this, in a culture where we have removed absolute truth, where we have taken out that foundation, 
what you have is a morality that is constantly changing. But what is right and what is wrong in our culture? It depends upon which decade you live. Oh, is abortion right or wrong? Depends on the decade that you're in. Oh, is same-sex marriage right or wrong? Depends on the decade that you're in. Is it okay to change genders? Depends on the decade that you're in. You know, there are a lot of questions that right now we would say, well, if you, yes, that is wrong. 20 years from now, maybe not. Maybe the majority has said, no, we think this is actually good, that it is actually right. As Christians, we very much say that our understanding of what is right and wrong or good and bad has a foundation. And that foundation is revealed to us in the word of God because the word of God is based upon the character of God and God is good. God is the definition of what is truly good. That is how we know what is right and what is wrong. And that is how we know it through all times. It is unchanging. Let me, let me point to you a verse. It's on your message map. This is part of the passage that Stephen read earlier. This is from the Gospel of Mark. This same story appears in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Luke as well. Uh, Luke tells us that this young man who came up to Jesus was some kind of government official. Uh, Matthew tells us that he had great wealth. Uh, he was young. We know that as well. So here was a guy who had a lot of money. He had some kind of power position in society. Uh, and as well, he likely had good health. He was a young man. He had the world by the tail. He had everything that anyone could ask for except, apparently, joy, peace, purpose, happiness in life. And he hears about Jesus and he hears about the message of Jesus. And Mark tells us he goes to find Jesus and ask a very specific question. Here it is. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? By far the best question anyone can ask in life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What does it take for me to be saved? Best question anyone can ask. But notice that Jesus here did not answer his question. He pushed pause and he then in turn asked this young man a question. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now the point that Jesus was driving home here was, you're asking me this question about eternal life and you called me good teacher. We know that God is the only one who is truly good and you called me good. So are you saying in fact that I am God? Are you acknowledging that I am the Messiah. But here's our point for this morning. Jesus here confirms that God is the one who is good. How do we define what is good and not good? We define it based upon the revealed word of God, which is based on the character of God. What is right and what is wrong is not based on individual opinions. It is not based upon what the majority of the culture says is right 
or wrong. Just because Congress passes a law does not necessarily mean that that law is good. Just because the Supreme Court says something is right does not necessarily make it right. Here's our foundation. It is the Word of God based on the character of God. Why? Because only God is ultimately good. Okay, here's point number two. You can write this in. God is good. Number two, I am not good. God is good. I am not good. None of us are born good. Now, I will not belabor this point this morning. We covered this extensively the first week of this series. If you missed that, feel free to go back and listen to that on the podcast. Uh, We talked about this whole section where we find the fruit of the Spirit traits listed out. And in that section, before Paul writes out the fruit of the Spirit, Paul writes out what he calls the acts of the flesh. And Paul acknowledges that we are all born very much connected to the acts of the flesh, what we call a sinful nature. It is very clear that all of us are born with a sinful nature that is not good. Let me give you a couple of verses here, one from the Old Testament, one from the New. First comes from Ecclesiastes 7. Here's what we read. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right, and never sins. Then here's from the New Testament, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Numerous verses throughout the Bible tell us that we are all born as sinners, that we fall short of this ultimate goodness that is possessed only by God. Now, here's the pushback. Maybe some of you in this room even would give me this pushback. Certainly, you would hear this from others. The pushback is, yes, but I know a lot of good people, even people who are not Christians, who never go to church, they are good people. They give to charities. They serve in charities. They're nice. They're good neighbors. They're good co-workers. They are good people. And if you told me that, I would say, yes, I agree with you. I I know many of them. They're very good people. Love having them as neighbors. Love serving alongside them in some charity. I would agree with you 100%. However, what you have to keep in mind is, how are we defining good? They may appear to be good in society, but you take that same person and you put them next to a perfectly holy good God do not appear as good. Let me illustrate it this way. Some of you know that I like to play golf. Uh, My enjoyment of the sport far exceeds my ability to play the sport. You need to know that. Uh, I am a 10 handicap. If you're not familiar with golf, let me tell you what a 10 handicap is. A 10 handicap is someone who has enough good rounds to make them think there is potential for them to be a good golfer, but so many bad rounds to bring them back to the reality that they're not a good golfer. That is me. However, you could go out and you could follow me around in one of my good rounds of golf, and you might say, he's a pretty good golfer. I might hit a drive that goes in the fairway, second shot on the green, two putt for par. I might do that for a couple of holes, maybe even three, throw in a birdie somewhere along in the round, and you might look and go, that guy is actually a good golfer. However, even on my best day, you put me up against, say, Jordan Spieth, 
or my favorite golfer, Scotty Scheffler, who was the number one golfer in the world. You put me up against either of those guys, those guys and here's what you would say. Do not quit your day job. You know, if you preach as bad as you play golf, then you're going to be out of a job. You know, why? Because you're comparing me with these guys who are actually good. We may appear to be good. We may do some good things, but put us up against a holy, perfect God, and we agree with what the Bible says. No one is righteous. All have sinned. We see that none of us are, in fact, good. So number one, only God is good. Number two, we are not good. But number three, here's the good news. You can write this in. God's goodness changes me. God's goodness through the Holy Spirit in our lives changes us. And I actually wanted to phrase this point this way. God's goodness makes me gooder. But I knew there's some school teachers in here who would just send me a nasty email about that. But that's really the point. It is the goodness of God that makes us gooder. Uh, goodness, just like all the other traits of the Holy Spirit, is not something that we produce within ourselves. It is only the Holy Spirit residing within us, working in our lives, that true goodness is able to be manufactured and manifested in our lives. Through spending time with God, who is the standard bearer for goodness, then we began to display goodness in our lives. Let me give you a couple of passages from the book of Exodus. Uh, the first is from Exodus 33. This is where Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments from God. This is God beginning to reveal his goodness to the people of Israel that he had called to himself. He reveals his standards for goodness through the Ten Commandments. Moses on the mountain meeting with God, and he says to God, I want to see your face. I want to see your glory. Now, what exactly Moses meant by that, we're not sure. I don't think Moses fully understood what he meant by that question. I think he just had had this interaction with a God who had called him to lead the people of Israel, and he's thinking, God, I just, I want to see you. I want to know who it is that has called me to do this thing. And God says to Moses, I can't do it. If I show you my full glory, it will kill you. You cannot stand in my presence. However, God says, I will show you my backside. He puts him in the cleft of a rock and he says, I'm just going to give you a glimpse, just, just a sliver of who I am. And in Exodus 33, here's what we read. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. So Moses gets to see just a part of God. God's goodness passes in front of Moses. Then Moses goes down the mountain, back to where the people are gathered, back to where Israel is gathered. And notice what we read in the next chapter. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. Do you get that? God's goodness changed Moses. 
he, he was radiating because he had spent time with God. God's goodness rubbed off on Moses. So here's the question for us, and it is very convicting, and it is convicting to me as well. Number one, are you spending time with God? Are you taking the time to sit in God's presence, to read his word, spending time in prayer, allowing God's goodness to fill your life? Number one. And then number two, is that then translating into how you treat others? Does that change how husbands you treat your wife, parents, how you treat your children, how you treat your coworkers, how you treat your neighbors? Is it changing how you interact with others? Teenagers, are you spending time with God? And then is that changing how you treat your parents? Is it changing how you treat other students at school, how you speak to your teachers? Does it change who you are? Is God's goodness filling you and then your goodness flowing out to others? Neither one alone is enough. If we try to produce good acts on our own, they fall short. It's not what God would have us to do. And then if we spend time with God, but it never translates into, in, into treating others in, with kindness, treating others better, then that's a fail as well. And so the, the scripture is very clear that as we spend time with God, it changes us and it changes how we interact with others. So number one, only God is good. Number two, you and I are not. Number three, God, God's goodness changes us. The Holy Spirit makes us gooder. And number four, my goodness then changes others. The goodness that I then experience from God changes my character, and then that changes others as well. I want you to notice this verse on your message map from Galatians. This is just one chapter over from the passage about the fruit of the Spirit. Paul wrote this uh, really as a promise to us in Galatians 6. It says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Paul here points back to this trait of goodness and says, keep going, keep working, keep spending time with God and allowing that to change you and how you interact with others. And if you do that, you will reap a reward. Jesus said this in Luke chapter six, but love your enemies, do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Jesus said the same thing here. Keep going. Keep working. Keep pursuing God and then allowing Him to change you. And as you do that, as that goodness flows out of you, it will not be in vain. God will reward you. Let me close with this verse that is actually one of your devotions this week. Uh, this is from Proverbs chapter 15. Uh, here is what the writer of Proverbs wrote. Through patience, a ruler can be persuaded, and a gentle tongue can break a bone. It's an odd verse. You know, the first part, maybe we can understand, through patience, a ruler can be persuaded. But the second half of the verse is strange. A gentle tongue can break a bone? 
What did the writer mean by that? How does a gentle tongue break a bone? Maybe this will help us understand. Several years ago, I came across this true story uh, that was featured on national public radio uh, about a social worker named Julio Diaz who lived in New York City. He left work one day, and Mr. Diaz, as he always did, took the subway when he left work and headed towards his favorite restaurant for dinner. He got off at the subway stop where his restaurant was located. He got off. He looked around. He noticed the platform was virtually empty. He walked over to the stairs to go up, and about the moment that he got to the stairs, a teenage boy jumped out from behind the stairwell with a knife in his hand and said, give me your wallet. Mr. Diaz reached into his coat. He quickly pulled out his wallet, handed it over to the young man. The young man turned around and started to take off. But before he did, Mr. Diaz says, wait, 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 hold on. The guy turned around. He took his coat off and he said, it's cold out there. And if you're going to go around tonight robbing people, you need a coat in order to stay warm. This kid just looked at him like he was crazy. The guy thought, I got to keep speaking. And he said, you know what? In fact, I'm heading up these stairs to go to my favorite restaurant, and if you'd like to, you're welcome to join me to come eat. This teenager just cocked his head and for some reason said, okay. They walked up the stairs, walked into the restaurant. The moment they went in, everyone knew Mr. Diaz, Julio, 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 and this kid just looked amazed that everyone knew this guy that he had just robbed in this particular restaurant. They sat down to eat. And Mr. Diaz just peppered this teenage boy with questions. Tell me about your family. Tell me what you want to do when you grow up. Tell, tell me where you're headed in life. And then they got to the end of the meal, and Mr. Diaz looked over at him and said, You know, I would be happy to buy you dinner, <laughs> except you stole my wallet. If you give me my wallet back, I'll, I'll pay for dinner. Teenager thought about it, reached, got the wallet, handed it over to Mr. Diaz. And he said, you know, that, that knife that you were carrying, he said, I really liked it. Uh, he said, in fact, I've been looking around to get a, a knife. And he said, if I give you $20, would you give me the knife? Teenager thought and said, sure. Gave him the knife. Now, you hear a story like that, and you probably think initially, well, that Mr. Diaz is just the nicest guy in the world. Perhaps, but I would say he's also pretty cunning. Oh, he managed through his goodness to get his wallet back, to get his license back, to get all his credit cards back, and to get a knife off of this teenage boy who had tried to rob him. That's what the writer of Proverbs meant. Our goodness can be very powerful in the lives of others. The way we treat them, the way we act, the way we serve others can break a bone, can change lives, can have a dramatic effect on others. As we spend time with God and God changes us, let us allow that to flow through us so that it can change the world around us as well. 